0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. We have moved to the final, the third part of the the positions, thy petitions rather in the scripture. Note Matthew chapter 6. He says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, here's the first petition, hallowed be, thy name. The second one is verse 10. Thy kingdom come, and now the last of the thy petitions. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We're finishing these up. Last week, we spoke at length. The second one, thy kingdom come. Uh, Speaking of this, what is God's kingdom? What does it mean to pray Uh, as it were, that God's kingdom would come. And we looked at it in a supernatural sense that for God's kingdom to come, it it obviously means that His will will be advanced. Uh, It is a supernatural citizenship. Uh, It is to be a citizen of heaven and of heaven's fair shore. And obviously here on earth is that vestige of the last that really is the kingdom of evil in one regard that will one day be His. Uh, sin and rebellion rule upon this earth. And so to pray that God's kingdom would come is to pray that more individuals come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ. Yet equally to pray that thy kingdom come means that we believers will have a supernatural type commitment to these things. That we'll give our resources and our efforts and our activities and all of our abilities to honor and glorify Him. That's what it means in one sense, thy kingdom come. But we're here at this last one, and of this in verse number 10, it is thy will be done. Now as in the previous thy petitions, that last phrase in verse number 10 is worth noting, in earth as it is in heaven. I would say that if we're looking in verse number 9, that God's name, his name to be hallowed, I would tell you, and I think you'd agree, that in heaven, God's name is hallowed. That is not the same thing as saying it's hallowed here on earth. I would say in heaven, we would say His kingdom is present. I would say it's not present in the same way here on earth, but it is in heaven. And I would say that in heaven, God's will is done, even by the angels of glory. But it's another matter to speak of God's will being done here on earth. So there is a contrast by which we as believers in effort to pray and to pray in a biblical manners, need to understand really this, what is this God's will that we are praying for? Who are these individuals that it impacted? What does it mean that I am living the will of God? You know, I would note that when we speak of the will of God, it often can be a very complex question. But like so many other things in life, the answer really is not as complex The complexity comes when choosing whether or not we are going to fulfill God's will or our will. But to be sure, there is sometimes a complication that arises in understanding the will of God. But it's expressly given in Scripture. For instance, Ephesians chapter 5, he makes this statement. Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. It's interesting that if we were to take that verse and think, Paul says we're without understanding if we don't understand the will of God. And I would, I would ask us rhetorically, not raising a hand or anything, how many could we really say, yes, I'm absolutely in the will of God. I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm living in the will of God. There's often we set back and say, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. What is it? And I think part of it comes from a, uh, maybe a misunderstanding about what the will of God is. The will of God is broad, it's expansive, it's eternal. In one sense, because God is eternal, He exists outside of time and space and matter. He's not aging like we age. He lives in the future tense, and He lives in the present tense, and yet He preceded all that was before the past tense. God was God long before I was conceived. God will be God long after I am deceased. It's a complex thing in one regard to consider how vast it is the God to whom has a will and as it pertains to my specific life. When we're thinking about the will of God, it might be helpful to kind of uh, give you some uh, descriptions, perceptions, if you will, by which one could see and understand the will of God. In the Scriptures, when you think of the will of God, it's clear that there is a purposeful will. And by that I mean a sovereign will. Theologians call it a decretive will. There's an aspect of God's eternal, comprehensive plan that embodies all the universe, that embodies the heaven above and the hell beneath and the earth in between. For instance, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, in about the third verse, you find the first mention of God's will his decretive will, that he decreed something that came about And that's in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. When you speak of God's sovereign, his purpose, his decretive will, you can see it by virtue of the nature and the universe and the world that he created. It's really magnificent to consider. All that exists in this universe, it exists... Because of His will. Space with its broad distance that lies beyond the comprehension of our human mind is fully comprehended and was spoke into existence. So when the Scripture speaks of God's will, sometimes in the Scriptures it's talking about a sovereign purpose under which all the universe, heaven, hell, and earth, all of it falls within. I think over in Isaiah, the prophet writes in the 14th chapter, The Lord of hosts hath sworn... Saying, surely, as I have fault, so shall it come to pass. I have purposed, so shall it stand. And I, uh, Ephesians chapter one, we read this in verse number nine, having made known, <coughs> having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. I marvel at that verse. He has purposed it in Himself. He has made up His mind. He has decided. And in the following verses, he's going to talk about the fullness of the dispensation of times. Together in one, all things in Christ, which are in the heavens and which are on earth, even in him. He concludes that verse, he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. When you consider the decretive will of God, his sovereignty as it expands all of the universe, who was God's counselor? Himself. So sometimes when you're looking at the will of God in Scriptures and you're reading of His will, He's really talking about His sovereign purpose as it pertains to that which was before all things and of that which is to come after all things have been done. I would say also in reference to this decretive will, sometimes when you consider the will of God, sometimes the will of God, you might call it another aspect of the will of God, it's the hidden will of God. Sometimes, God hides his plans for the perception and understanding of men. There's a word in the New Testament. Paul mentions it on several occasions. The mystery. The mystery of godliness. The mystery of the church. The mystery of the resurrection. There's a number of them. And It wasn't a mystery as far as the discovery. It rather was a mystery in the sense that God had hidden it. But he had laid those foundations before the beginning of earth was ever created. So in that sense, sometimes the sovereign will of God, it's made known, it's planned out, but sometimes it's hidden. Until such times as he has revealed it. Deuteronomy 29, uh, Moses writing, he said, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Galatians chapter 4, and speaking of this time of year, it would would uh, theme well with it. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, he said, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. My, what a... I was studying this past week on that phrase, the fullness of time. What is it that Luke 2 says right there at the, at the beginning of the, uh, the nativity? See, this is where you could just yell, Oh, and it came to pass. That's the phrase. And it came to pass. And you consider for a moment all of the detail which surrounded the nativity. It wasn't just one thing. It's a host of details. Take, for instance, just one of these. And we're talking about the hidden will of God, the will of God, how how he's overshadowed things. It's, in one sense, it's decretive, it's universal, it's sovereign in one aspect. You think about Luke chapter 2. You've got there, here, here is a man and a woman betrothed. And she is overshadowed. She has a child. But hundreds of years before they were ever born, the prophet Micah wrote in the 5th chapter that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Judea. But Jacob and Mary did not live in Bethlehem, Judea. But it was in the fullness of time. It came to pass all of this which God had planned in one moment occurred. What would cause them to travel to Bethlehem? Now we know from the text of Luke chapter 2, what was it? It was a taxation. And they had to go back, likely there was a census involved as well. Alright, so you're telling me that for in order for God to fulfill Micah chapter 5 and verse 8, Octavius had to become the emperor. He had to defeat Mark Antony on the shores of Egypt and conclude the Ptolemaic dynasty of Cleopatra. Approximately 15 years into his reign, he had to call for an empirical tax. And it was revolutionary in which he did so. Because it was a tax like the Empire of Rome had never seen. Previous to Octavius, It was always a formal tribute-type tax. But in changing up the tax code, he made it be that across the entire empire, the vaster part of the world, that you had to go back to the land of your nativity and you had to register there of where you were from and of what means you had so you could pay this tax. And it came to pass. My friend, if you're going to believe as the Scripture completely and comprehensively instructs in the deity of Christ, in His divine birth, you have to believe in the sovereign will of God. For who hath been His counselor? My, what majesty by which He navigated providentially and supernaturally the course of event that would transpire and bring about the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem. All of this prophecy being fulfilled in great wonder and token. In that you would speak of as the sovereign will of God. Augustus Octavius, one of the most well-known, perhaps aside from perhaps men of infamy like Nero and Claudia and stuff of that nature, one of the greatest known emperors of all of Rome. And yet his actions, though they seemed actions of himself and his counselors, were harmonious with the sovereign plan of God. My, that is a beautiful thing to consider and part of the will of God, the decretive will. It's almost as though Octavius... And of all the empire, Rome in one moment acted just like nature. As God said, let there be light. And it became light. Sometimes, sovereign will of God is at play. Though it may at times be hidden to us. A second part or aspect of the will of God is the perceptive. And I might call this the revealed word of God as it pertains to His commands. There are a number of explicit commands in scriptures that speak of what God wants. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, I would that you would be praying without ceasing. Oftentimes, when we speak of the will of God, we forget that there's a whole book that explicitly commands what I should be doing with my life. Praying without ceasing. Giving of thanks would be another one. Um... Ephesians chapter 5, I mentioned this Sunday school hour. Be not drunk with wine, where is an excess. Be filled with the Spirit. Romans chapter 6, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves service to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that we were the servants of sin, now have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered in you. I have a responsibility in this life to live a godly life. It's explicit. So I can look at the will of God as what is written in the holy text. And there's a whole bunch of it there. I have a number of verses and passages that I have memorized. But I'd be foolish to consider that I have memorized every command that God has made on me as a New Testament saint. I mean, my friend, I'm just going through my mind. In Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living Sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable duty. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. that you put off concerning the former, self, the, the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. Here's another explicit command. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In verse 31, he talks about us being forgiven and put away bitterness and anger. All of this is explicit commands. What do you mean? God has not hidden his word from you. So when we speak of the will of God, we can talk about his decree, his sovereign will, as it expands all of universe, heaven, earth, and hell below. Yet we also, when we speak of the will of God, could talk about what we can perceive, what has been revealed to us through the word of truth, and it's clear. Yet too often, I think, our great characteristic when we're considering the will of God, specifically I speak individually, we talk about God's will in the sense of a specific will. We speak of the will of God, if you will, as what He wants us to do. If if I can put it this way, His desire. For some, that might be the specific will of God for their life as it pertains to vocation. Whether God wants you to be a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. The specific will of God who God wants you to marry, or who God does not want you to marry. The specific God is what you might do with your day tomorrow or next week, or next year, or what you should major in, or what job you should get. I think too often we put all the emphasis on that, and somehow when great confusion comes, we fail to realize that in reality, following the simple will of God, or I should say following the will of God, can be rather simple. For I have a whole book which chronicles for me what I ought to be doing. And it is not God's will that I ever engage in any activity, no matter how noble it might be, if it causes me to not obey the clearly revealed word of truth. The fact is, when we speak of God's desire, when we speak of His specific will, this, fact, this aspect of the will of God is not often fulfilled on earth, it is in heaven. For the angels in glory only obey the specific will of God. They're doing the exact function and feature that He would have them do. But on earth, it's not that way. On earth, in this dominion of Satan, and this prince of the power of the air, His will is most often accomplished in this present age on this present earth. He's a blinder and a deceiver. He's a wicked individual, and yet so often His will, that which is rebellious and prideful, is applauded by society. The virtues and righteousness of an almighty God are condemned. And yet it was this way all the way back in the time of Christ, for in Luke chapter 13, listen to what the Lord said. Almost you can hear his, His compassion, His sorrow, His grief. As He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem which killeth the prophets, and stoneth them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as children, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. And do you remember the last phrase? And ye would not. As it pertains to God's specific will, God wills that all would come to the knowledge of repentance and salvation. Yet that is not the will of the whole world in this hour. Nor was that the will of the whole world when Christ, in His three and a half year ministry, walked on the face of earth. In fact, the reality is this. The will of God should be to the Christian what we would want if we could see everything from God's point of view. Too often the case is our own sin and our own sinful nature causes us to resist, and I'm speaking to believers in this sense, the very specific will of God that He has for us. Praying in the will of God is a necessity of prayer in Scripture. Let me give you a few verses to consider just for a moment. For instance, in this passage that we opened in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, We here see the manner of praying. We see the example, or if you will prefer, the mandate that is made. When you pray, pray, thy will be done. It's a mandate. God has explicitly said, as we address the Father in prayer, make sure in these prayers that your focus is on the will of God. I would note that too often when it comes to our prayer, they often resemble James. You ask and you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your own lust. A lot of times in our prayer life, our prayers really flow from the will of self rather than from the will of God. I think, being personal with you, but I think sometimes I can remember fighting that very battle in myself. Wanting something so badly. And that want may not have in and of itself been a wrong thing, but a desire so strong that I'm praying, God do this and God do that. Failing to realize that God has a divine will, and if I could see things from his perspective, I would want exactly what he sees. That's hard for me to comprehend, to be honest with you. I might would remind you of Daniel. Now here's Daniel, one of the Hebrew children that's carried away in captivity. He's never going to go back to Israel. He's never going to go back to the land. He's never going to see uh, the temple built. He's never going to see mom, dad. He's never going to have the experiences that he had grown up with and those that he had valued. But when you look at Daniel's prayer, that's not the focus of it. The focus is of it, thy will be done. One could speak of Daniel being a great man of prayer, and you could cross-reference that very... uh, Public example that you have regarding prayer with the very fact that Daniel was submissive in his life to the will of God, even if it came at a cost of his own personal will. Thy will be done. I'd give you another example, I think, of the Apostle Paul, particularly I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have the, the instruction on uh, the marriage, a harmony, if you will, in one sense of a marriage. Yet he makes a profound statement in chapter 7. He said, I would that you would remain even as I. He was speaking to unmarried people. Remain even as I. Now I remember as a young bachelor thinking, wow, I don't know about that. How could that possibly be the case? And he lays it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He that careth for the wife careth for the things of this life. I might please her. And she that hath the husband careth for the things of this world. I might please him. And Paul said, I have left all of this behind. Why? for the furtherance of the gospel's sake. You see, that aspect of the will of God, Paul was at peace with, for he got a glimpse into seeing what God saw. The mandate is made in scriptures. Thy will be done. I think of Luke chapter 22. The prayer, the Lord's prayer in the garden. He said, let this cup pass me, nevertheless, thy will be done. Not only see he a mandate of praying in the will of God, but we've got an example. It's the exact way the Lord closed his prayer at the height of that passion in the garden of Gethsemane. The empowerment's given. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul praying for the believers at Colossae said, he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's a powerful sentiment. Praying in the will of God. Paul said, you have known the mind of Christ. Paul praying for these individuals that he prayed that they might have full knowledge of God's will. I think too often the reason why we fail or struggle with the will of God is we've neither really gotten into the word of God and, and seen what God really wants from us, but he's been clear. It's our responsibility to have a knowledge of that. The cry goes forth in Scriptures, the 143rd Psalm, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. You know, when you think about these verses that are given here in this manner to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would note of a few things. We cannot say our unless we are aware that we are not alone in the very presence of God when I pray. We cannot say Father apart from the Saviorhood of Jesus Christ. We cannot say which art in heaven without realizing that we are on earth where there is a focus of rebellion towards the express will of God. We cannot say hallowed be thy name unless we are prepared to take action against every unholiness in our life, our home, or our nation. We cannot say thy kingdom come unless we are ready to rely on supernatural conquest and a commitment to an almighty God. We cannot say in our prayers, Thy will be done, if there is any reservation in our heart regarding what God wants. And we cannot say on earth as it is in heaven, if we are not prepared to sacrifice anything that is of this world. The prayer of Christ in the garden I would cause you to reflect upon. He groaned, Thy will be done. His prayer teaches us two very important things. Number one, that it is of great utmost importance for a child of God to have submission to God. I remind you of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Speaking of praying in the will of God, praying really as Jesus Christ prayed, it requires submission to God in every aspect and detail, in every thought, hope, and expectation of this life. Yet equally, it is the chiefest way in which there is resistance against evil. Why? Because you're being conformed to the very sovereign will of God. God's warfare against Satan is carried on by his submissive people, actively resisting satanic influences at all costs by insisting this phrase, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That would be the chiefest aim. Think how that would transform the worries of your life. I will give a show of hands, but how many got something you could worry about? All five of our hands. Absolutely that's the case. Do we believe in the sovereign will of God? Do you believe he has a revealed will of God? Do you think he cares for you so much that he has a specific will? Is he so haphazard in his planning that you cannot rely on his good timing? Yet too often great Christians tread on where angels fear to tread. And they jump into things half prepared, half waited to. They worry and fret and complain and murmur and every evil thing. Why? Because they have not truly submitted to this phrase, Thy will be done. It's a powerful sentiment. In all reality, it is a very liberating sentiment. There's just some things outside the scope of my control that I just don't have to worry about. That bears the truth of 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your care upon Him. Why? If He cares for you, He knows what you're going through, He knows what you have need of before you even ask, so in a great sense, I can commit myself to His will. I can have joy, I can have thanks, I can know peace. According to Philippians chapter 4, I can know need. Why? because I am in His will. So then what does it mean? What does it mean to pray as we are commanded to do so here? Thy will be done. Let me give you just five thoughts. I think to pray in the will of God means, firstly, proclaiming God's right to rule. If it is His will then that is us, in our prayer, testifying that He has a right to rule. The psalmist writes in the 68th Psalm, Let God arise. Let His enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate Him flee before Him. To pray, Thy will be done, is to pray against all the rebelliousness that exists in this present world and this system that we live. It is to pray against things that dishonor Christ and is to pray against the disobedience of other believers. To proclaim, Thy will be done, is to forthwith with my mouth and with my heart proclaim that God has a right to rule this earth. And there's a number of reasons He has a right to do so. The least of these is the fact that He created all that is in the world. All of the nature, He created it. Therefore, he has an inherent right to it. The souls of men, he has revealed himself unto. He created them. He has a right to rule. If you wanted to speak of his sovereign plan, he's the only one with a sovereign plan. He has a right to rule. I remember driving in a city before, New York City. We were close, it was before GPS... You had to buy one. They didn't come with your phone, you know. And I didn't have a GPS. We are winging this thing. Friend of mine, a cars; he's making all the shots. He's calling all the shots. It's not working out. So invariably, somebody asked him, have you ever been here before? No. Then what gives you the right to make decisions? (laughs) Well, listen, God has a sovereign plan. Satan does not. If there's no other reason why God has a right to rule, it is He is the only one with an eternal sovereign plan. Ergo, He has a right to rule. To pray in the will of God is to proclaim that God's knowledge is superior. I think of our passage in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your way. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts. Many today have the idea that nearly any or every wicked thing that occurs in their life, no matter how corrupt it is, is somehow a result of God's holy will and should be accepted and be thankful for. It is a gross misinterpretation of Romans 8, 28. The idea that all things have worked together. For the good of them that love God, I love God. And so any sin that I commit in life that brought something about, that was a good thing, I ought to thank God for it. Now, Romans 8, 28 is talking about holy sanctification. In the context of Romans 8, he's talking about suffering. And that verse in verse 28 is talking about any sufferings that may happen in this life, I am walking with God and that God will use in my life. We live idea that we can do whatever we want to, and if it's of God, it's going to happen. If it's not of God, it's not going to happen. That's not God's plan. That's fatalism. My, if that's the form of theology that one's going to embrace, that why pray, you know, because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Then why in the world would you have the importunate prayer? Why with all would God say, pray with faith, and you shall say unto this mountain, be ye removed? God is influenced by the prayers of His saints. His sovereign will is going to occur, not His specific will. His specific will, as it relates to humanity here on earth, is not most often accomplished. Why? Because you have rebellious people, you have pride, you have foolishness, you have deception. And you couple all that together and you'll get a free will that will at every turn oppose the God of all knowledge. And they'll say, well, I know what I need to do. Now be careful about that. You've never been here before. God's thoughts, to pray, thy will be done, is to proclaim His knowledge to be superior. God is the giver of good things. God is not the giver of evil things. It's amazing to me how often Christians in our life, they just make decisions and chalk it up to God. And when the explosion happens and things don't work out in life, they wonder how God let that happen to them. It's tantamount to jumping off on of a bridge, hitting the pavement and saying, why didn't God catch me? It's foolish. No, know, to pray in God's will is to submit myself to what He wants in His timing, knowing, knowing forthwith that His knowledge of circumstances, time, and me is superior to my own. That's why one of the most devastating things that a Christian could ever begin to make their decisions with is, I want this. I like this. I prefer you start making major decisions In a self-centered state, you'll never end up with a godly result. It won't happen. God's thoughts are greater. Again, back to Isaiah 55, as the heaven is higher than the earth. How high is that? Considerable amount. So are my thoughts than yours. Let me give you an illustration, a biblical one. You think of Gideon out threshing wheat out in the grove, you know, hiding from everybody. Gideon, thou mighty man of... I don't think you've got the wrong guy here. Two different thoughts on the matter. The same can be said of Exodus chapter 4 with Moses. I've called thee to do thus and thus. Not me, you didn't. Go call Aaron. Two different thoughts. The same is true in one sense with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle born out of due season. He said, I am the least of all apostles, but God hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. To pray thy will be done is to pray and to proclaim that God's knowledge is superior. Note the third thing that i would give you. To pray thy will be done is to proclaim that God's precepts should be observed. God's precepts should be observed or kept. On earth as it is in heaven. The psalmist penned in the 103rd Psalm, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his will. You want to know how the angels behave? That verse summarizes it. They hearken to the voice of his will. He need only make a reference to it, and they fulfill it. Yet you think of the children of God, I was speaking with someone the other week, and the topic of Ezekiel came up. And Ezekiel, particularly in the first opening chapters, is a hard book to get past the first couple chapters. He begins to talk about, I'm going to call you to a stiff-necked people. They will not listen. Mike, can you imagine a church today looking for a pastor in advertising? Great building, packed house, never going to listen to what you say. I mean, that would be a rough congregation to preach to. That's exactly to whom God sent Ezekiel. But when you look at the angels in heaven, note what the psalmist says. They hearken unto the voice of His will. Do you think that God has to argue with the angels to get them to do what's right? Do you think He has to say, Now, Gabriel, how many times have I told you to go down to Mary and tell her what's happening? Now, Michael, stop arguing with the devil over how many times? I mean, I'm being facetious, but those are biblical expressions that are used. Yet how about mankind? We speak of doing the will of God, Ephesians chapter six and six from the heart. How often does God have to tell us to do something? I mean, my soul sometimes you're wondering. When's he going to stop telling us what to do? Jews of the Middle Ages used to say that there were 208 thy shalt" laws in the Bible. The Mamadies would put it on this wise. He said it's one for every bone in the body and they double boned on some of them. They referred to them. So that's where they get 208. And that there were 365 thou shalt nots, one for every day of the year. You can look at that and say, man, that's a lot of thou shalt nots. But the beloved John writes, the fifth chapter, that if we love God, we keep His commandments and His commandments are not. But how oft do we? You see, to pray thy will be done is to pray that His precepts shall be observed not only as it is in heaven, but also on the earth. Let me say something here. Only the children of God have the capacity to obey God. That comes through the agent, through the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important. It's why it's so important to know that you're a child of God. To have the Spirit of God communing to your spirit, confirming that salvation is why it's so important. Because the only way that you're going to consistently in this life obey the precepts of the commands of God is if you walk with God. And the only way you're ever going to walk with God is if you walk in the Spirit. For truly, Galatians 5 says that if I walk in the Spirit, I shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It is God's desire That we do His will by keeping His will from the heart. Proclaiming in our prayer that God's precepts should be absorbed. Let me give you a fourth one. Praying Thy will be done is proclaiming that His characteristics should be accepted. We spoke of this a little bit in the previous Thy petition. Hallowed be Thy name. We're not just simply talking about a title or a moniker or a handle, when we speak of the name of God, we're talking about all the characteristics and all the traits of attribute that are given to him. The chiefest attribute of the Almighty God is holiness. So when we speak about praying, thy will be done, we're speaking about the, the overarching characters of, uh, characteristics of God be accepted in our life and prayerfully in the lives of others. Well, what does that mean? It means that if I'm praying in the will of God, my actions, my thoughts, my behaviors, my attitudes ought to be morally pleasing to Him. I am not fulfilling the will of God if I am full of hatred, malice, bitterness, and every evil way. To be morally pleasing to God, it causes that I should resist and reject pride and temptation In my own life. And James deals with this. In James chapter 1, dealing with temptation. He said, every man is tempted when he is what? Drawn away of his own lust. Let me ask you a question. What's he drawn away of? He's drawn away from walking in the Spirit of God. And when he's drawn away, lust hath conceived, and and lust, when uh, when it has conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin is finished, bringeth forth death. Verse number 18, do not err, my beloved brethren. You know what he's saying? Resist the solicitations to do evil. How do you do that? Through the power of God. Why? Because I, in my life, should want to aspire to the holiness that would be like Jesus Christ. Yet also, it is to resist pride. In James chapter 4, God resisteth the proud. And that is in the present continual sense. He did, He does, and He will forever do. There's never going to be a day that the sovereign God's going to change His mind on pride and rebellion. He hasn't used it to date. He has only judged it. And 10,000 times ten thousands of years, though my mind cannot fathom that expression, God is still going to have the same opinion about pride and rebellion that He had when He created in the Garden of Eden, and even before that when He said, Let there be light. So to pray thy will be done is to proclaim that God's characteristics should be accepted. This is why the paramount motive in our life, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatsoever you do, do all how to the glory of God. Devoid of pride, devoid of rebellion, devoid of sinfulness. To proclaim his characteristics, yes, they should be accepted. To pray thy will be done is to proclaim that God's will would prevail above all others. It really is a prayer of faith. Knowing that he hears and answers our prayers. It is to pray for and pray in conformity to God's will. To seek his shaping in my life and in the lives of other believers. Let me speak to that a moment. I'm not particularly fond about that. You see, the problem with me is that I'm not exactly what God wants me to be. And you know one of God's chiefest means by which he's going to change me into the image of his dear son? There's a number of them. But I suppose, biblically, the chiefest one is the sufferings of this life. I was asked very recently, Listen to someone pour out their heart. And they concluded with this thought Why is all of this bad stuff happening to me? That's an expansive question. There can be a number of reasons. Sometimes bad things happen to people because they do stupid things. You climbed on a roof and you jumped off it and you broke your leg. That's not God's fault. A silliness, a stupidness, might even be pridefulness, which is similar to the same thing. Sometimes bad things happen to good people because of the foolishness of someone else. Probably in a room this size, everybody knows of one individual whose life was dramatically changed because of a drunk driver. Why'd that fall out to me? Someone else is evil. It's prevalent in our society. Sometimes, Evil occurs to someone for the glory of God. It had nothing to do with anything they did. I would take, for instance, the blind man in John 10. Who calls with this man to be blind? Him or his parents? What's well, the answer? Neither, but that the glory of God might be manifested. Sometimes God allows people to go through stuff simply for His own glory's sake. Job would be another one of those in one regard. You think about all the comfort that folks have had deriving from a study and reading of Job. I mean, he's quoted. People even talk about the patience of Job. They get it from the book of Job. Well, he go through all of that. But I remind you that the man in chapter 1 was an upright man that eschewed evil. You know what it meant? He hated it. Ask Job what he said about pride. He'd say, I'd hate it. Why? Because God hates it. Ask Job what he thought about rebellion. Job would say, I hate rebellion. I will to be submissive. Why? Because that's what God wants. That's the kind of man Job was. Job was the kind of godly man that every other man would aspire to be in their life if they sought to please God. You look at the trauma and seemingly unmerciful uh, difficulties that fell on him. Why God might be pleased? Sometimes struggles in life occur and it's, it's God shaping us. Sometimes it's Him getting our attention. Oftentimes He's shaping us. That's what Paul relates. That the sufferings of this pleasant life are far small when compared to the eternal glories that lie ahead. Why? I can't always answer the why. That's why I need to rest in the who. And pray thy will be done. It is proclaim his will to prevail over all wills. It is putting to death our own desires, our wills, and our ways and committing our submission to him. Missionary to India many years ago, Amy Carmichael, and she has fascinating biographies memory serves me correct, I believe she was born with a dark complexion hair. And early in life, that just upset her so gravely because she always thought light-colored hair was most attractive. In her prayer journal, she would write about, I wish God would give me light-colored hair. I wish wish I'd have been born with that. It would have just been wonderful if if God would have And you look back and see how simple that was. We do the same thing. Only it would not be too many years down the road when God called her to India that she would need that dark colored hair. She wrote this in one of her journals, her prayer journals. And shall I praise to change or shall I pray to change thy will, my Father, until it accord to mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray Thee, Father, blend my human will to Thee. It's a powerful sentiment that His will would prevail over all's. Too often our prayer lives are weak because we do not pray in faith. Too often we pray because of duty and obligation, thinking that God is just going to do just what He wants anyway, praying for God, uh, praying rather for God's will indicates that His will is not always done on earth. It's not always inevitable. The lack of faithful praying inhabits His will. Prayer is essential to the proper working of the divine God here on earth. So when we pray, pray, Thy will. Let's stand at feet. Father, pray. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.sbbcpa.org. Until next time.